Thank you all for coming out. God is good. He doesn't just let us try to figure things out on our own. He comes to us with a story of salvation written in symbol form so that we will come to him and ask questions. What does this mean, Lord? What does this mean? Why did you do it that way? Why was it necessary that a sacrifice had to be given, an animal killed as a substitute? There are all kinds of questions that just beg to be answered in the sanctuary. Why was the building put the way it was? Why were the dimensions the way they were? And a lot of these secret messages that I will be talking about later will be in the afternoon program as far as the symbolism. For this program, we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement because that's what we're in right now. We're in a judgment time, a Day of Atonement. Now, I want to talk about the preparation for this day. Now, you know that Friday was called a preparation day, right? It's a preparation day for what? For the Sabbath. Do all of the heavy lifting and uh, all the burdens that you want to relieve from having to be done on Sabbath, you do it on Friday as much as is possible or reasonable. And um, I grew up in the church, and from a little child, I remember my mom doing all the special cooking and, and uh, the bathing and all those things happened on Friday in preparation for the Sabbath experience. Well, the same thing is true for the annual one day out of the year, Day of Atonement. It was a very special day looked forward to, some with joy, some with dread. Uh, everyone was called upon to for, um, confess and forsake their sins. Even down to the symbolism of yeast, of all things. Yeast was a symbol of sin because it could be turned into alcohol, which is a symbol of death in the scriptures. And uh, so they had to get all the yeast out of the camp. Even those minute little pieces of what you wouldn't think would matter. It, it did matter. Um, how many days of preparation were there? Do you recall? Okay, in the scriptures, in, unless you're a, a lover of the book of Leviticus, you probably don't know some of these things, but that's where all this came from, was from the, primarily the book of Leviticus. But there were nine days of preparation in anticipation of the tenth day, which was the Day of Atonement. And I remember looking at this um, model of the sanctuary, and I have a miniature setup that I didn't bring because I just didn't have time to get it all together. But it shows the entire layout of the court. And in the foyer, there's a, a board there with the has it shows the drawing of the sanctuary layout. And as you look at it, there are nine pillars that lead up to the most holy place. There are five on the first opening, which is the uh, holy place, and four that, uh, that make the difference between the holy and the most holy, holding up that curtain. And I wondered about that, though. Why would there be nine pillars? 
It didn't seem to make sense. It's not a biblical number you would normally think of. Well, nine was the days that they had for preparation before you go into the most holy place. That's why I believe God put that number there. Uh, why not have them the same? Well, there was a message in it. And can you imagine just the state of mind that must have been going through the people of Israel at that time? During these nine days, they were to afflict their souls. They were to pray in earnestness and go to their neighbors for forgiveness and seek restitution and make sure that everything was right between them and God. Especially the high priest. Picture it. You're called to come before the king of kings with a death sentence hanging over your head if you didn't have everything done just right. And all of Israel would wait and wonder with bated breath, is he going to come out alive? There are legends, it's never been proven, but there are legends that they would have a cord tied around the, uh, the ankle of the priest, but there's no proof that that ever happened. But, uh, you know, they would listen for the bells. Now, like some of you said, clear in the back, maybe you can hear the bells. Can you hear that? Well, they would listen for the bells. It was the only sound that would be coming from the, the temple, the sound of the bells, as he walked and as he officiated. And on the Day of Atonement, um, Jeff is going to help me here in a little bit uh, with this part of it. On the Day of Atonement, the priest changed his clothes. I remember talking to a close friend of mine about this. And he was surprised. Steve Wahlberg. Y'all know Steve Wahlberg? Well, we're, we're close friends, and um, I did an addition on his house, and we, I worked with White Horse Media a little bit, helping them with uh, projects there. And um, anyway, I, uh, he came to one of the seminars, and I mentioned this, that the priest changed his clothes. He says, where is that? I didn't know that. He was surprised. Well, it happened in Leviticus 16. It talks about it, where he would go into the most holy place, and then he would come out like this, in the common priest robes. What do you suppose that God had him do that? He stepped down and became common. Jesus, the king of heaven, stepped down and became one of us. That's why the, the change of clothing took place. He mediated as one of us, the one that was originating the white robe, and then offers to give it to us if we follow him. Isn't that beautiful? Very simple statement here. And what happened next um, was very dramatic. Aaron would have to come before the temple with a bullock, it wasn't a full-grown beast, but it was, uh, I'm not sure exactly how, maybe a few months old, maybe a year old. But it was a large sacrifice. The most expensive sacrifice was the bullock. And, yes, he would take this bowl, set it down, take a knife, and have the bullock contained in some way. They actually would, at times, they would tether the animal to the horns of the altar for safety so it wouldn't run off. And then they would take a very sharp knife. Now, this is difficult. 
It's not very pretty or fun. But he would cut the throat of that animal. Now, I don't know about you, but it would be very hard for me to think of doing that. Very difficult. And children, 12 years old, young men, young boys, would be initiated in doing this animal sacrifice. High drama, tender emotions were involved. To see that animal vicariously step into your place and take your sins upon it. And so Aaron would put his hands over the head of the bullock and confess his sins, and along with that vicariously, as I mentioned earlier, that's transferring, he would confess his sins over the bullock. And so all the sins of Israel, including Aaron and his family, they were transferred to the bullock. And then he would take a sharp knife and quickly cut the throat of the animal. And the blood would come forth. He would catch the blood. And then he began an interesting ritual with this blood. This happened only on the Day of Atonement. He then would go in first to the most holy place. And he would sprinkle the blood seven times on the mercy seat and seven times on the ground in front. And then he would come into the holy place and he would sprinkle blood in the holy place at the altar of incense on the altar, the horns of the altar, and on the ground seven times. When that was completed, he would come into the outer court where stood the uh, altar of sacrifice. He would sprinkle the blood seven times around on the horns and on the ground seven times. And then, when that was completed, he would take and cast lots. Now, sometimes the casting of lots was done by what's called the Urim and the Tumim. You've probably heard of these. Urim and Thummim, which we say it's not right. It's Urim and Tumim in the Hebrew. And these would either, the one that would say no was darkened by a cloud. The one that was yes would light up like a little... Uh, light would glow, or actually quite a light would glow from the other one, was a yes. And that's the way they would determine things. And, but he wasn't wearing that, see, at this time. He was wearing the common priest robes that didn't have this, so they would probably, I don't have the proof of this, but logically they would also do casting of lots with a bag of stones. And they would reach in and pull out a stone that would indicate the answer. And so lots were cast, because if you look at the goats, you can't tell the difference. They look identical. And so the only way to know which was the Lord's goat was to ask the Lord. And then he would tell the priest which one was which. And he would now take the Lord's goat, and in like manner, as he did with the bullock, he would take and dip his finger in the blood of this animal, the goat, and he would stick this blood 
And drop for drop, he would start in the most holy place on the altar of or the uh, mercy seat and on the ground at the, in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And he would come out into the holy place and the altar of incense and then out in the outer court with the altar of sacrifice. Again, repeating the same ritual, not only repeating it, but drop for drop. He would put the blood on top of the other blood. And then that part of the ceremony was completed. Now, I'm going to go ahead with the rest of the story and then come back to this for a moment. After this was completed, there was the final ceremony of sacrifices. And by the way, there were four animals involved in the sacrifices. There were four horns on the altar, four ingredients in the incense, four ingredients in the bread, four layers over the canopy on the top, Fours everywhere that you look. Four is the atonement number. When you're united with God, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and you together. That's why four is the atonement number. And that number comes up many, many times. After this ritual, there was another sacrifice. But it wasn't sin sacrifice. It was a burnt offering. Now, what I'm going to share with you next is, is challenging and difficult. The burnt offering that he would now do was taking a ram. It was prepared and in the court. He would kill the ram. It was not confessed sins over it. That was already done. He would take the ram as a burnt offering, which was a dedication to God. And he would take that animal and he would dismember it. They had tables there. It was a bit of a butcher shop. He would take the animal apart, the limbs, and go inside and scrape off all the fat. Separate out the fat. And reassemble the animal on the altar of sacrifice and take the fat and put it on top of the sacrifice. And it was all consumed, all burned, complete, showing a complete dedication to God. Well, why such a gruesome ritual? These are questions that just beg to be answered. Why such a gruesome ritual? Why the fat? And remember, it says that God said, the fat is not yours, it's mine, it's not for you to use. Well, we're thinking dietary, which, sure, that's going to help, right? But that's not what it was meaning for. That's not, the symbol is not explained in that. Now, let me ask you, I, I didn't, I read about all this stuff. I've got books, piles of books on the sanctuary, and I couldn't find anybody anywhere explaining to me what that meant. Why the fat? Well, it was just stated. The fat's for me. You separate it out. You put it on top and it burns. Well, let me ask you a question about fat. I've had more and I've had less through the years. Have you all gone through this? We all do to some degree. But fat, what's the purpose of fat? Well, it's a little insulation up here. We need some, don't we? Well, what's the purpose of it? What does it do? Huh? 
They're saved up calories, right? It's for future use. That's all it does. It's for future use. It forms our bodies. It makes them more supple, and, and then it can get out of control. But usually the fat is actually designed to give shape as well. But it's hiding future power, future use. Burn it up in time, right? So what this symbol is saying is that when you accept Jesus Christ, you go through the process of repentance. God accepts your repentance. And then he says, give me your future. Your future is not yours to spend as you see fit. You've dedicated your future to me. Give it to me. And as you go through the sanctuary prayer, and I want to suggest that you do this at times when you think of it, pray through the sanctuary. Come to the sacrifice. Come to the cross. Rededicate your heart in the labor of baptism in the Holy Spirit as well in the holy, most, in the holy place where the incense was burning constantly. The fragrance of that incense would overpower some of the other fragrances that weren't so nice. And all of the camp could smell that, the fragrance of the incense. And that is a symbol. This is a symbol of the water baptism we go through when we accept Jesus, repent and be baptized. This is a symbol of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, being surrounded by the Holy Spirit in and out and through. Well, on the Day of Atonement, this ritual, this strange ritual puzzled me. Why these sprinklings? Why seven times on the uh, altars and on the ground? I couldn't figure that out. I prayed about that. I said, Lord, please help me out with this. I want to know what that, what that weird ritual means. First of all, seven, you know, is it's, um, what does that mean? Completion, perfection, that's the number that God rounds things out to. And uh, I have a, an illustration here I want to share with you that uh, depicts the importance of seven when it comes to our very existence. And Aaron, I can have you help me with this. We have an easel, but I'm not going to take the time. I can, I've got Jeff here to help me. So... Seven. Why seven? I was looking at a, a geometric, uh, it's an axiom, it's, it's a fundamental principle of geometry. You take seven quarters or whatever size you want, if you've got silver dollars you can use those, put one on the table and then match up around it. You will find that this is a cluster. You have six and one in the middle and they all touch each other. And as I was looking at that cluster of seven, I wondered, I wonder, could this be a foundational element in the creation week? Is that possible? Because you have one that stands out all by itself and six that surround it in a cycle. And as I prayed about it, I said, Lord, tell me what's going on here. And he said, just start out anywhere you want. So I started here with one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Now, this is, I love this chart. The first day, God said, let there be light. Let there be light. He, actually, he said it twice. If you read in the original language, it's not let there be light and there was light. 
That's mistranslated. It says, let there be light, let there be light. He says it twice. He squared light. You know the formula for mass is light squared over the energy? Just like Einstein's M equals, or, um, equals MC squared? There it is, right in the Bible. The very formula for our creation is what God did there. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, right? The energy the face on the face of the earth. And God said, let there be light, let there be light. Squared light, boom, you got mass. God can create just by his words. Isn't that beautiful? And when he does this, he can do it on anything and everything he wants. If you want to have a changed life, you ask God to come in and speak light to you. He will come into your mind and he will burn up those pathways. We talked about this last night and I didn't finish my thought there, so I'll finish it now. But in your mind, you have pathways of thought that get reinforced and reinforced. And you want to change, you want to change a habit, but you can't. Have you ever had this experience? Sure you have. You ask God to come into your heart and your mind. He loves doing this. He will burn up those pathways that lead you to destruction, and he will give you alternate, pla uh, the brain is what they call plastic, it's plasticity, and he will create new pathways around that destructive path that you were on. Physically, come in and burn those up. That's voluntarily going to the lake of fire beforehand. You know, someday we're going to stand on a sea of glass that's like fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were in the fire, but it didn't consume them. God was in the bush, but the bush wasn't consumed with this fire. It's a cleansing thing that we can have from God. He says, let there be light, let there be light. There was light, there was mass, and he began to work with it. Just like with us, we can have God come and recreate us just as surely as he created the world itself. The second day... He parted the waters from the waters. There was sky, firmament, and oceans. That's all there was the second day. Third day was the grass and the trees and the dry land and the vegetation, all of those elements. On the fourth day, he created the sun, moon, and stars. Well, the stars were already there, but the sun and the moon, he created the solar system. And on the fifth day, he created the fish and the birds. And on the sixth day, he created man and land animals. I didn't have enough room there to draw all that, but you can see the stick man and his wife. So here God has this complete formula for life, every support system for the life that he put in it. Let there be light, and here's right straight across you have the sun. Firmament and the waters, right straight across, you have the fish and the birds. Land and vegetation, right straight across, you have the support system for man and animals. Interesting, isn't it? It's perfectly balanced, and everything runs through the perfection of this relationship symbol of the Sabbath. This is what you call irreducibly complex. You can't rearrange this and have it make sense. There's no way to introduce a false day of worship. There's only one day that can be that day of worship. 
the outlier of this circle was just a day for communion with God and with family. Isn't that beautiful and simple? It really makes profound sense. And if I had the time, which I don't, I would also show you a chart of the sanctuary. Lo and behold, there are seven stations in the sanctuary. And would it surprise you if I said that the Ark of the Covenant would fit in here with the Ten Commandments? It contains the Sabbath command. And around it, everything balances just like the days of the week. The creation cycle and the recreation cycle are in harmony. This is not coincidence. God does things by rules and foundational um, building blocks of truth that are mathematical, that can be looked at. And and you can challenge this all you want, but this is what it is. You can't change it. And by the way, look at what happens when you start drawing straight lines. You get the Star of David. See? You see that? The Star of David is not a cult symbol. They they, uh, co-opted that. The Star of David is actually a representation of this cycle. I believe the ancients knew this. It was a very simple thing, isn't it? This isn't complex. It's not hard. And I can just see them out in the desert drawing circles and doing this and that and go, hey. And they kept that symbol, the Star of David, to represent their nation in, in modern times. Interesting, isn't it? But how few people know anything about it. Very few. But anyway, whatever God says will be done. I, this was for a a sermon topic involving the temptations in the garden. We don't have time for that, so you can ignore that part over there. But thank you, Aaron, for doing that. Praise God, huh? That's exciting. And so if you have an opportunity to share with someone why you believe the Sabbath is relevant, just get out a pencil and paper, draw some circles, and say, look at this. What do you think about this? I believe that our, the evidence for what we believe is overwhelming. That God has given us abundant evidence to believe what we believe. And this afternoon, I'm going to talk about the layout, the distances that things were placed. And it even plays into quantum physics. Now, I'm not going to bore you to death with nitpicky quantum physics, but I'm going to share with you a very important principle that has just recently been discovered, and the scientists call it magic numbers. There's nothing magic about it. It's fundamental, and God used them in the sanctuary. And there's no way that anybody could have known about this at Moses' time. It's impossible. But the sanctuary is provable by any rational person's mind. If you look at it carefully... It matches up to anything and everything that God is about and doing. Well, on the Day of Atonement, we had the sprinklings, as I mentioned earlier. Why the strange and uh, peculiar ritual? In some people's minds, it's barbaric. I remember uh, I wrote a book about this called uh, The Sanctuary Code. I haven't got it printed out yet, but it's all done, the manuscript's done. And someone read this manuscript, and I'm talking about the different sacrifices and what they meant. And uh, they got very angry. 
I mean, not just a little bit angry, but very angry. Um, actually, it was a family member who was of a Buddhist um, belief and uh, Middle Eastern or Far East uh, disciplines and different religions he's read into, and uh, he, uh, he got angry that I would talk about these sacrifices like that was a mean and terrible thing. Well, it is difficult, isn't it? And what's the point of it? God wants us to develop love. Is that right? Truly what love really is, the principle of love. And for that to take place, you have to have also in that an environment of hate. Balancing love and hate. You need to hate sin with an everlasting hatred to truly have righteousness and love. You have to have both connected by God's design. He wants us to hate sin. You know that Jesus was, he would recoil at the presence of sin. Here he was among us, and yet he just, it was painful for him to be around sin. Why was it so painful for Christ in the garden? Remember how he knelt down and he, he prayed and he wrestled with God and he sweated blood? It's because sin was being put on him and he hated it so much. And why did he hate it? Because sin symbolizes separation. He didn't want to be separated from his father. Now, in a small way, I experienced a little bit of this coming up here. My wife wasn't able to come with me. And before I left, she just hugged me and held me and hugged me. And she texted me when I got here, I miss you so much. Very sweet and tender and powerful. I can't imagine being separated from her and having that kind of loss, that kind of heartbreak. But it was way beyond that that Jesus went through in our behalf. He took the sins of the entire world upon himself that he could give us righteousness as a free gift. But with that free gift comes a responsibility. We have to reject sin in all its forms and be completely cleansed from any inkling of an idea of going into sin. Does that seem reasonable? Of course it's reasonable. But it's difficult when you have a group of people that are used to sinning all the time. And they're used to having sinful pleasures or sinful thoughts, reactions. Maybe you're born with tendencies or maybe you develop them. In any case... Sin causes a separation, so that's why God doesn't want us to have it. And in the most holy place, in the Ark of the Covenant, God placed his rule book, his moral, eternal rule book, which was very simple, very straightforward, non-ambiguous, and by many people's standards, very reasonable. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, any likeness in the heaven above, the earth beneath. Thou shalt not take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. 
or steal. You know the basic commandment. It's all very reasonable. In fact, most nations of the earth put these into human laws. Well, the last six, anyway. Not the first four so much. But it's a nice package, all fit together in ten basic rules that God gave us to live by. And he wants these more than just something you live by on the outside. He wants these in our hearts. That's the problem. We have heart trouble. We don't just need a bypass. We need a whole new heart given to us by Jesus Christ. And in that heart, we're going to love him and hate sin just like Jesus did. And it's a little tough getting us to let go of sin. So God has a plan through his great love and his sacrifice to get us to let go of it. And that involves repentance and a turning away from it. Repentance means this. I'm going this way now. Not that way anymore. I turn away from sin. I hate sin. I want to be close to God and close to each other. That's what these commands are saying. Don't do anything to rob yourself of a human relationship. So if you steal from them, you lie to them, what's that going to do? Not, it's not going to do anything good. It's going to be bad. And don't re- lose your relationship with me, he says. Keep your eyes focused on me. Don't worship idols. Don't get your attention on the other things of this world. And have that written in your heart. To get that written in your heart, you have to go through a process. Instantly, you're covered when you walk into the outer court. You're instantly covered under grace. God has put his grace over you. But that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. But as long as you're pointed this direction and you're under grace, you are saved. Period. No matter how far you get or don't get, if as long as you're moving toward God in that direction, he covers you. Isn't that beautiful? Think about the thief on the cross for a moment. He was at first reviled, uh, he was saying terrible things, cursing at Jesus. And then he had a change of heart as he's, stand, he's going, you know, this guy's holy, he's perfect, and we're sinners. And then he began to tell his friend on the other side, why do you curse this man? He hasn't done anything wrong. Remember? And then he looks to Jesus with tears running down his face, and he says, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understood what the disciples did not. And Jesus said to him, you will be with me in paradise. Just like that. He didn't get down off the cross and go repent to the people he'd harmed. He didn't get baptized. He just got a blessing from God. Under grace. Because Jesus was baptized for him. When he went to the Jordan and was baptized, he was baptized for all those who have no opportunity for that act. God covers every base for us. And he's so beautiful. Now, the sprinklings, back to that. Why did he sprinkle seven times on the article of furniture? Well, that makes sense because when we sin against God, that needs to be repented of and atoned for, right? So from the holy, most holy place into the um, holy place in the outer court, 
the sprinklings took place in that fashion. Now, I'm going to hurry up and condense this because I, you know, I've got a few minutes before you hear the call of the potluck. Um, when you sin against God, you need to repent. When you sin against man, you need to repent, right? Because man is created in the image of God. So if you sin against a brother or sister, you've sinned against God as well. So both need to be atoned for to have your record clean and God remembers your sins no more. And eventually we forget about them too. Thank God. It takes a little while though, doesn't it? But that's why the two sprinklings, sins against God in any form, against Father, Holy Spirit, Son. Well, the Holy Spirit's another issue we won't talk about now. But This act of sprinkling shows an atonement toward God and when he uh, sprinkled the ground in front of it, this was dirt, that represents man. From the dust of the earth we were created, to the dust we return. So you see both being atoned for, both parts of the law, two separate uh, stones that had these issues on them about relationships. So we had to have both atonements going on. Now, the animals that were used, notice the first one, the bullock that he had, uh, had to kill and take and sprinkle that blood, and then the other blood of the goat, the Lord's goat, was sprinkled on top of it. What's that saying? Well, first of all, the ram or the bullock blood was full of sins. You notice the Lord's goat did not have any sins confessed over it. You read it. No sins were confessed over the Lord's goat. Why? Because the Lord was pure and perfect. He didn't sin, but his blood atones for us. That's why the mingling of the blood. We get a transfusion. The old blood of sin in our life is taken out, and the fresh blood of Jesus Christ and his merits is put in us. Isn't that beautiful? God wants to change us thoroughly in every way you can imagine. Body, mind, soul. He wants to give us good gifts, eternal gifts from heaven. Isn't that a beautiful statement in the sanctuary? And it's very simple. Very plain, very straightforward. This is all about people. This is all about people connecting with God and with each other and having an eternal safety in them which is loving and living by his law through his merits and his power. He wants to come into each one of us and write in our very DNA these principles of love. And as we submit to this process, he takes out any propensity toward sin and replaces it with a propensity toward righteousness. And we go from victory to victory. We can be overcomers. Isn't that good to hear? God has given us a pathway to overcome. Why would he go through all this rigmarole if it weren't possible? Why would he put us through this? He's not cruel. He's not mean. He loves us. He wants to be close to us. God is a holy God, completely and thoroughly holy. This afternoon, I'm going to talk about some of the symbolisms in these robes 
and how they were put on. But right now I'm going to share with you a concept that comes from the layering of the robes. It's very powerful and important. Um, Aaron, come over here a second, I'll use you one more time. Aaron was dressed by Moses, and he was clothed in front of the people. Now, not immodestly presented, but he started out with what they're called linen breeches. In other words, breeches, that's where the term comes from. Pants and a, and a top was linen underneath everything that was put on. And then Aaron, uh, Moses, and you're going to represent Moses here for a minute. We'll switch gears. Moses then began placing the robes over Aaron in front of everybody as an object lesson that they could ask, why does why did you do it this way? What does this mean? He first would put the broidered coat, it's called. This, the high priest robe was a little different than the common priest robes. It had a little more um, pizzazz, as it were, and a little more design in it. And I couldn't really find out exactly what it was, but it was some kind of embroidery that was around the, the sleeves and around here. And that was placed on Aaron first. And then the second layer was this blue robe that you see. And this royal blue robe had the pomegranates, representations. They weren't real pomegranates, by the way. I used to think as a child that they were. And I imagined him walking around banging into pomegranates all the time, and it didn't, didn't make much sense. But it represents the church, and I can explain those symbols later this afternoon. There was a pomegranate and a bell all the way around the hem, and there's a beautiful symbol in that that I'll share later. But it was this blue robe that what do you suppose rep it represents? What does blue represent? That's why I had Arlen, by the way, made these for me. Uh, he found some nice blue glass, beautiful, and he uh, carefully cut a, a radius. I don't know how he did it. And then I put the Hebrew characters and gold leaf on there to represent the law. But blue, it's, according to a lot of evidences, was the color of the stone that the commandments were written on. Blue was put around the hem and the sleeves of the Israelites. They all had these blue uh, hems to represent the law. So wherever they went, whatever they did, they were reminded of the law of God to be faithful to the law. And over that was the ephod, the uh, multicolored ephod. I did my best effort to make it look as genuine as possible, but it wasn't anything. It was so beautiful. It was made of threads, seven, by the way, seven threads in the weave, two red, two blue, two uh, purple, and one gold. It was weaved together, and that's what made the fabric. It had an iridescence and a sheen that was just incredible. And that was placed, and then the breastplate, and then the miter. And the miter was made out of white linen. So that's touched his head and his uh, shoulders. There, there's indication that they did have protection for the back of their neck. Not proven, but, you know, it's more, more likely than not. And so also you'll notice that I don't know, you can't really see it, but see my feet? I don't like showing off my feet, but 
to be accurate, I don't have any shoes on. He doesn't either. Neither? Yeah. <laughs> I told him to clip his toenails. <laughs> so I'm barefooted. Why am I barefooted? We all probably know this. Remember Moses going up to the burning bush? And by the way, I want to be a burning bush. The holy fire of God, but not consuming me. That's what God wants for all of us. Whenever he uses something and his glory is present, he doesn't consume it. He just blesses it. And he wanted to bless Moses with a deeper experience of being close to him. So he says, Moses, take off your shoes. I want your feet to be involved with the ground that you're walking on because I'm here and I'm present within it. The God that can keep everything spinning up there and he knows every little atom to every person that's ever lived invaded that space. That's a big God, powerful God. And he was in the very ground he was walking on. So he says, I want to be close to you. Take your shoes off. That's what he was saying. It wasn't this command, give me respect. Take off your shoes. No. It was, Moses, I want to be close to you. Please, just take your shoes off. Because it was a holy God. And he wanted Moses to be holy as well. And so the high priest was layered with robes that touched his skin, and only holy white robes touched his skin. From his head to his feet was touching holiness. That's what God wants for each of us. We're called to be priests and kings, right? He wants us to have a holy atmosphere. He wants only holiness touching us. But does holiness do anything? Interesting. Holiness is not a state of action. It's a state of being that leads to a proper state of action. So holiness comes first. You have to be made right to do right. And through the gift of Christ, he gives us his holiness, his robe of righteousness. And it gives us the power to do righteous things. That's why the blue comes next. And the blue was where there was a telling sound that would come out. The tinkling of the bells is a voice of proclamation of truth that comes from true righteousness. Sponsored by true holiness that God gives us. Isn't that beautiful? The layers of things, the way they're put together, is absolutely essential. That's why even the colors have a representation of truth. You have the red, self-sacrificing love. You have the law, and you have the combination of those, and the purple, which is a statement of royalty. That's why Jesus had the purple robe in mockery, but it was fitting to have purple represent Jesus Christ. One more thing I want to share with you. I'm, I'm out of time now, but not out of words. So I'm going to give you a few more words. Um, in the, the afternoon program, I sure hope you all come back. You're going to love it. The symbolism, this is where I really get excited. I get excited with all of it. But when it comes to breaking down this, the integrity of the building, how it stood there, what the materials were saying, the actual composition of the metals says a very powerful message to the way the building stayed there without falling down on the priest 
uh, to the uh, arrangement of everything and the, and the layout all tell a message of salvation to us. It's important to ask these questions and to know. You know that we're told in some very inspired writings that it will be impossible for us to make it through the time of trouble unless we understand the sanctuary. That should be a motivator, don't you think? Why? Because the time of trouble is to reveal the character that has been developed in us. Character growth and development is everything. The ten virgins found that out, or five of them did, didn't they? The five wise had their characters refined. Even though they'd gone to sleep like all the others, their character was developed. And they couldn't share it with the others because you can't transfer character to someone else. You have to experience it yourself. You have to come to the sanctuary yourself. You have to choose to walk through that outer court and into the holy place and the most holy place, ultimately. That's where God wants us. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, will you like to take upon yourselves the yoke of Christ? You want to yoke up with Jesus? Those who make it through to the end are going to follow him wherever he goes. So when we have Jesus yoked up with us, we see a step to take, and he's going to say right or left, pull hard, turn the other way, because he knows what's best. He created us, and he knows what's going to make us happy if we follow him. Don't you love Jesus? Aren't you glad for him and what he did for you? In conclusion, I want to share a little story with you about something that I experienced. And by the way, this isn't all cerebral, all learning, informational thing. This is all about the heart. If it doesn't touch your heart, it doesn't go anywhere. Where your heart is, there will your treasure be. You follow your heart is the connecting point with Jesus, is it not? Isn't that what gets you to keep following him because you love him? You want to serve him? I asked for, I prayed about this, and God loves these kind of prayers. I asked God to make Jesus more real to me. I'd read about him. I'd read The Desire of Ages. I'd read all kinds of books and, and been exposed to a lot of wonderful classes and things about God. I heard many sermons. But I wanted Jesus to be more real to me, something personal, a connection that was palpable, that I could touch. And I prayed about this, and one night I had a dream, not long after that. And in the dream... I was in the garden, not too far from where Jesus was praying. And I saw him on the ground, and he was writhing almost like he was in pain, and he was groaning and gripping the earth, as almost like he would be ripped from it. He was hanging on, and he was praying to his father, and I could hear the mumbling prayer, and I came closer to him, I heard him say this. I'm willing to go through it for Vinny.
That's what my family calls me. For that little boy that strayed away and came back. He was willing to go through that for me. He died on the cross and he says, I'll make a trade with you. I'll give you my life. I'll take yours. I said, okay. Jesus is real. He's available. He has his arms stretched out wide and he says, come unto me. That's the safe place to be. Just come. I will take care of the rest. I will make sure you make it through. He who has begun a good work in us will see it to completion. And we can be sure that anything that's hateful to God should be hateful to us. And we can ask him to transform our thinking through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit. That flame of the Holy Spirit will come in and transform our minds. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us. Desire of Ages, page 641, says this. When we have the same love for the world that Christ had, then for us his mission is accomplished. We're fitted for heaven, for we have heaven in our hearts. Praise God. Heaven's gate is open wide. Time is of the essence. We don't have time to fool around in this world anymore. It's coming to a close. And God is pleading, not that time should be a motive, it's his love that's my motive. I just love him for what he's done, and I want to follow him. What do you say? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Our loving Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your son. What an infinite gift that is. Thank you for his righteous shed blood in our behalf that cleanses us from sin, the desire for it. I pray now that you will send the Holy Spirit to be in our hearts, to reinforce in us, in our minds, in our thinking, the concept of heaven bending over us with salvation being offered to each and every one of us. We accept it, Lord, again, and we ask you to go with us now as we continue in the Sabbath hours and help us, Lord, to be alert and attentive as we learn more about your wonderful sanctuary in Jesus' name. Amen.